Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. And I won't do what they do in India, but after about everything, they say, Hallelujah! And everybody says, Hallelujah! And so, I guess we could try that. Hallelujah! hallelujah. All right, that's what they do. Isn't that right in India? They, they do Hallelujah, and they're really into it. So, John chapter, John chapter 8, as we are continuing through the book of John, it's been a joy to actually hear the words of Jesus. I'm just shocked at how... I was talking, this is not part of my manuscript, this is just what Don and I were talking about. Just, it's amazing how many people don't actually pay attention to the words of Jesus. I think he's kind of this fluffy, hippie, all kind of, um, you know, the, the Jesus light. And actually when you read the words of Jesus, he has some of the most poignant words to say about sin, salvation, and judgment that we could ever hear. And, and so we see that here on the pages of the Bible in John chapter 8, one of the greatest blights in the history of our country is the evil of slavery. Slavery. On January 1st, 1863, President Lincoln issued what is called the Emancipation Proclamation, which declared, quote, that all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are and henceforth shall be free. Emancipating, freeing the slaves. Now, it was a bold proclamation. It was in the third year of the bloody civil war. And as great and as bold as the Emancipation Proclamation was in announcing the freeing of slaves, it was actually very limited in what it accomplished. It was limited It only applied to the southern states, not the border states. So slaves could still be held in border states. There were also many exemptions in parts of the Confederacy. And it was all contingent upon the North winning the battle, the Civil War. And it did not end slavery that moment, but it was an impetus to propel the abolitionist movement. And you know our history. The Civil War came to an end. And for that period after the Civil War, our nation underwent what was called Reconstruction, the Reconstruction years. And it was during Reconstruction that there were the Jim Crow laws. Really a hundred years of segregation racially in our nation from the Emancipation Proclamation. Now Jim Crow laws basically made it legal to racially segregate in schools, in public places, at water fountains, on buses. You know all of those stories. In 1954, the Brown versus the Board of Education, that Supreme Court case, ruled segregation in public schools to be unconstitutional. And it wasn't really until the Civil Rights Act of 1964, almost 100 years after the Civil War, that blacks in America truly could experience the type of freedom that Abraham Lincoln had envisioned a hundred years earlier. Now, why do I give you a history lesson about the Emancipation Proclamation and a hundred years of segregation? 
the lesson is this. Just because there's an announcement of freedom doesn't necessarily mean there's an experience of freedom. It took 100 years for that to happen ultimately in our nation. Now, our text this morning has a lot to do about freedom and slavery. What we're going to hear is Jesus's emancipation proclamation. How he's going to quote unquote free the slaves. And we're not talking about racial segregation. We're not talking about physical slavery. Jesus is poignantly going to talk about spiritual slavery and how he has come to set the prisoners free from that slavery. And it has everything to do with your and my eternal salvation. So let's read together the words of Jesus. He's still at the Feast of Tabernacles, if you can believe it. It's still this, he's he's already told them he's the living water, he's the light of the world, and he's going to begin some of the harshest words that we will see in the Bible from Jesus. And we will look at that in a few weeks. But let's just pick up in John chapter 8, verse 31 through 38. We're just going to look at this small section this morning. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If... You abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Excuse me. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. And we'll find out in a few weeks who their father is. Jesus says their father is the devil. Now, this is the harshest speech that Jesus is going to give. This is just the beginning of it. But here's Jesus' main point in this section that we're looking at this morning. Here's his point. You are truly saved if you evidence a changed lifestyle. You are truly saved if you evidence a changed lifestyle. Jesus is going to address what it means to truly be saved. How do you know you're a disciple? How do you know you've genuinely been converted? How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that? One of the issues that we've got to address this morning is false conversion. Now, the Bible is very clear that there is a category of people who may at one time professed faith in Christ. They may have even walked an aisle. They may have prayed a prayer. They may have even been dunked in some water. They may have been confirmed in a church, joined a church. They may have gone through some type of religious outward activity, proclaimed faith in Christ, but in fact were never truly saved. They were never soundly 
saved. They were never genuinely born again. Now, let me be very clear. We at Emmanuel, the elders, myself, our statement of faith, we believe strongly in what the Bible calls eternal security. In the truth that you cannot lose your salvation if you are a true believer. If you have been born again, if you are truly saved, if you have been genuinely converted, you cannot lose your salvation. You are eternally secure. We sang it earlier. Oh, no, you never let go. Let me just read to you our statement of faith just to let you know this is our official stance as a church. Those whom God has accepted in Christ, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit and justified by faith alone, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. We believe in eternal security. You can't lose your salvation. But, with that being said, there is such a thing as false conversion. People who have a spurious faith, a false faith, a bogus faith. Now, we've already seen this two times, have we not, in in the Gospel of John? We've seen it twice. So this is nothing new. It's happened on two occasions. In John 2, 23-24, at the very beginning of the Gospel, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knew their faith was not true. It was, not, it was a false faith. They, quote-unquote, believed in Jesus, but Jesus, quote-unquote, did not believe in them. He knew they were faking it. John six sixty six. We saw this a few weeks ago at the end of the feeding of the 5,000. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. At first, they professed faith, they followed him, but they they turned back. In the other Gospels, we have the parable of the soils. Illustrate this issue of false faith. The second soil, the rocky soil. The rocky soil illustrates false faith. Listen to what Mark 4, 16 and 17 says. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy... And yet they have no root. That's the key. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They get excited. They want to follow Jesus for a season. It's false, fake, bogus faith. It's not true saving faith. Now there's a little play going on in this passage of Scripture. Go back to verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Hmm. Many believed in him. If you've been tracking through the Gospel of John, then immediately you've got to ask the questions, well, what kind of faith is this? Is this the type of faith that lasts for just a little while and falls away? Is this true faith? Is this saving faith? Is this that they like, they like who Jesus is because he gives them miracles? What kind of faith is this? Jesus is not going to mince words. He's going to be very pointed. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Okay, he's talking to those who had believed in him. And what Jesus is about to say is, listen, if you have truly believed in me, then these things are going to be true of you. I'm going to address your false faith. 
I'm going to address the issue of your heart. So let's just use an evaluation tool, Jesus says. I'm going to show you the evidences that need to be in your life if you truly claim to be a Christian. So what Jesus does here is he gives three evidences of true salvation. If you say you're saved, if you say you're a disciple, if you claim to believe in Jesus, then what has to be true of you? And Jesus gives three, three tests, if you will, three evidences, three fruits. And so let's look at these three and let's just evaluate our lives this morning and say, are these true of me? None of the person next to you, that's not your business. Are these true of me? Let's look at these three evidences. Here's evidence number one that Jesus gives us. You abide in the word. Notice what he says in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Notice the if-then construction. If this is true, then this is true. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a Greek lesson, but this is in what's called a subjunctive, which means it's the case of probability. What Jesus is saying here is this. If you abide in his word, there's a high probability that you're probably a Christian. And the converse is just true. If you do not abide in his word, there's a high probability that you may or may not be a Christian. So let's ask a question. What does it mean to abide in his word? Jesus flat out says it. If you abide in my word, you're truly a disciple. So if you want to know if you're truly a disciple, not not a false disciple, but truly a disciple, you abide in his word. So what does it mean to abide? That word means to remain, to stay, to hold fast, to be connected. You are in his word. You're remaining in his word. And the Bible has a lot to say about this issue of holding fast or abiding or meditating or studying or obeying the Word. Joshua 1.8 As they're about ready to cross over the Jordan River, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all That is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Meditate on the word day and night, then you will be obedient to it, and then you'll experience success. What does it mean to abide? It means to meditate, to take it in, all of it, to obey it. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Notice how how the psalmist says that you delight in the word. Not only do you meditate upon it, but you delight in it. And when you delight in the Word, and when you meditate on the Word, and when you abide in the Word, the metaphor here is like you're a tree planted, and you have roots, and you have, you have sustenance, and you have growth in your life, and you're producing fruit when you meditate, when you abide, when you hold fast to the Word. Does that describe you? Do you delight in God's Word? 
Do you hold fast to God's word? Do you abide in God's word? Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell. That's another word for abide. Let it live in you. Let it dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ abide in you. Jesus says right there, if you abide in my word and my word abides in you and you, and you take my word in and you, and you meditate upon the word and you read the word and you study the word and you, and you saturate yourself in the word and you obey the word, then you're truly a disciple. James 1, 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What does it mean to abide? Fundamentally, what does it mean to abide? It means that you delight in God's Word, you read God's Word, you study God's Word, you memorize God's Word, you meditate God's Word, and you obey God's Word. That's what it means to abide. Does this describe you? If it does, then you're probably a Christian. You're probably a disciple. But the opposite is also true. The Bible's boring. If you don't study it, if you don't read it, if you don't obey it, if the only time you read your Bible is when you come to church and it's it's on your shelf at home and you don't internalize it and meditate upon it and obey it, it's probably a good sign that you may not be a Christian. Now, I'm not looking in anybody's hearts this morning and making a judgment. I'm just going by Jesus' words here that says, if you abide in his words, then you're truly a disciple. It's Jesus' criteria. Are you abiding? So evidence number one, that you're probably a Christian. A high probability that you're a Christian is that you abide in this word. You love this word. You read this word. You study this word. And you obey this word. This word is an authority in your life. It's the ultimate authority. It's the sole authority in your life. Let's look at evidence number two. You know the truth. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now notice how Jesus links these. When you abide in the word, then it leads to knowledge of truth. Now what's this truth that Jesus is talking about? Is it just a generic truth? No, I think in the context of what Jesus has been teaching the past few chapters, it's the truth about who he is. What's Jesus been saying over and over again? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the living water. I've been sent on a mission from my Father. I am the Messiah. I am the Lamb of God. It's the truth about who Jesus is in all of his perfections. Do you know the truth of who Jesus is? I mean, hopefully by now or the past few weeks, we've come to grips with the fact that you can't be neutral with who Jesus is. He's either the Lord of your life or he's, he's, he, you just can't be neutral towards him. You can't just look at Jesus and say, ah, you're either offended by him or you're enthralled by him, but you can't just be neutral. He's the light of the world. You have to know the truth of him. Now, one of the key evidences that you're saved is that you know the truth. 
you're not easily swayed by falsehoods. You're not easily swayed by bad theology. You're not manipulated to believe heresy. Now, let's read Ephesians 4, 14-16, and look at the metaphor that Paul uses about being anchored in the truth. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part's working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. About 11 years ago, Don and I went to Cancun, Mexico on a trip. And I grew up going to the beach. I love swimming. Uh, Both of my sons have inherited that. They love the pool. They love swimming. Don likes the beach, but she likes to sit on the beach. Not so much being in the water. So one time we were out in the water, and it was really choppy, and the undertow, and the riptide, and, and there was a moment where I think Dawn almost like lost it out to sea, and she had to grab a hold of me, and, and she was pretty shaken up, and, and I had to bring her back to the shore, and, and she was pretty shaken up because of the waves. Now think about that imagery. That's the, that's the imagery Paul uses here. You can get caught up in the waves of false teaching. Have you ever been to the beach, and you, and you go out, and you're playing in the waves, and then you come back and you realize, wait a minute, where's my towel? Where's your towel? You're about a half mile down the beach. You can be slowly caught in this wave of deception that's dangerous. And there's so much falsehood out there. There's so much falsehood on Christian television, on the internet, on Facebook. There's no shortage of falsehood. And so, if you're a Christian, you hold to the truth of the scriptures are you growing in your knowledge of the truth or are you being tossed to and fro like the waves first timothy 4 1 says this now the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons we're in those days right now deceptive teaching all around us Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Are you discerning? Are you able to distinguish good from evil? Are you practicing discernment? And let me just say this, there's a direct correlation between abiding in the word and knowing the truth. How do you know the truth if you don't abide in the word? If you do not abide in the word, you will not know the truth. The more you abide in the word, the more you know the truth. So there's a direct correlation. Now, let me just give you a little warning here. I'm not saying you're not a Christian if you don't have your theology 100% perfect. Nobody has 100% perfect theology. doesn't mean that we might have some blind spots or that we might have some weird beliefs here and there. It doesn't mean that we're always going to be 100% knowledgeable of the truth and we're always 100% correct. It doesn't mean that we're never going to get tripped up from time to time. But what it does mean is that you're teachable and that you're connected to a church family. 
and that you're willing to be corrected and that you're willing to sit under the teaching of sound leadership and elders and and, and growth group leaders and that you're willing to accept correction, that you're willing to know the truth, that you're not being isolated out here and getting all of your information from false sources. Now, a lot of times I have people come to me, a lot, and I welcome this, asking me about certain books, certain teachers, certain movements. I get a Facebook message. I get a text. I get an email. Pastor Sean, who's, tell me about this person. And I welcome that. I'm your pastor. I'm supposed to be on the front end of knowing heresy so that I can help you. I don't expect you to know all the heretical movements that are going on. And so I try to be out front. And so that's an important thing that you need to do. If you're not sure, ask me. Ask your growth group leader. Ask another mature Christian that you, can, that you trust. Ask one of the elders. Ask Pastor Andrew. Find out for yourself. The, the main thing is one of the marks of being a Christian is not that you have everything 100% perfect but that you're growing in the truth you want to know the truth you want to be corrected you're not falling into false teachings and one of the things I've been very proud of over the past couple years is, is our women's Bible studies our women's Bible studies have been very discerning in this area Uh, both different women's Bible studies have come to me and said, Pastor Sean, we're a little concerned about what we're learning in this Bible study, and I don't think we're going to continue with this curriculum, or or what do you think about this curriculum? And so I'm thankful that the women's Bible studies have on their own, I didn't come and police it on their own, they've come to me and said, we have some problems with some of the stuff that's being taught. And I'm like, praise the Lord, there's a lot of discernment going on in some of our women's ministries, and I think that's a good thing. Jude 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Evidence number one, are you abiding in the word? Evidence number two, are you growing in your knowledge of the truth? Now here's evidence number three, and this is the hard one where I'm going to start meddling. Well, not me, but Jesus. You ready? Number three. You experience spiritual freedom from sin. Notice what Jesus says. If you abide, you're truly a disciple. You will know the truth. And what will that truth do? The truth will set you free. Now, we're going to talk about what that means here in just a moment, but let's just look at how these quote-unquote believing Jews were offended When Jesus says you'll be set free. Look at verse 33. They answered him, We're offspring of Abraham, have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Hey, they made two mistakes here. Mistake number one, they didn't know their history. We've never been enslaved by anyone. Okay, let me lift off some people Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greece, and now you're under the Roman Empire. You've never been enslaved by anyone? blinded number two they're like we're children of abraham we're circumcised the rabbis taught if you were circumcised you would never experience hell you'd never be in spiritual bondage and so they they appealed to their ethnicity to say listen we've never been enslaved we're children of abraham we're god's special people we're exempt from ever being sinners because we have the special status with god but notice what jesus says to them Verse 34, he starts it with the truly, truly. That's an important thing. When Jesus says truly, truly, he's, he's making a point. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's very important how Jesus uses his words. The word practices is in the present tense in the Greek text, which means not just individual sins, but you are in a constant state of habitual, unrepentant lifestyle sinning. What's Jesus saying? If you as a lifestyle are continually living in unrepentant, habitual sin, you are a slave to sin. You're in bondage to it. You're in prison to that sin and you cannot get out. Romans 6 has a lot to say about sin and freedom and enslavement. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. When you are saved, you are no longer enslaved to sin. Christ has released you from that. It's no longer your master. You're no longer under the domain of sin. It's not your lifestyle anymore. Romans 6, 11 through 12. You must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Here's the problem with being a slave to sin. You obey it as a master. It controls you. It's your lifestyle. You can't get out from under it. It consumes you. And here's the lie of sin. Sin will lie to you and say, what you're doing is fun. Keep doing it. And for a while you believe the lie and you keep doing it and keep having fun and keep sinning your heart's desire. And what you do not realize is every time you keep doing that, the, the walls keep closing in and the bondage keeps coming in further and you are more and more imprisoned. And you cannot get out. Sin has become your master. It's not freedom. It's slavery to sin. It's bondage. And what Jesus is saying here is if you continue to live in a lifestyle of practicing unrepentant, habitual sin, it's the totality of who you are. It's evidence that you're not a disciple, that you're not saved. And here's the problem. You can't get yourself out of the prison cell. You don't have the key. You're in bondage. What has to happen to every single one of us? The Son has to set you free. That's what Jesus says. And what does he say there? Look at verse 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So when you come in repentance and faith and come to faith in Christ, Jesus sets you free from sin. He takes you out of the bondage of sin. He takes you out of the prison house of sin. He frees you. He releases you. Now, what kind of freedom is it? You know, that word freedom is abused a lot in our culture. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of freedom? What do most people think of? Freedom means I can do whatever I want. That's not Christian freedom. You have not been freed to do whatever you want. You've been freed to glorify God and live a life of holiness for Him. Not to live however you want. Romans 6.22. But now that you've been set free from sin, 
and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and it's in eternal life. Once you've been set free from sin, it leads to sanctification, a pursuit of holiness, living for God's glory, pursuing righteousness, progressing in your spiritual walk. That's what the freedom leads to, not to, to, to sin more. Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And here's a good one. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You see, when Christ set you free, the freedom he set you free to is to pursue love and holiness and to, and to display the fruit of the Spirit and, and to grow in godliness and, and to glorify Him. And the beautiful thing about it is, is when the Son sets you free, He puts the Holy Spirit inside of you to give you the power to walk in that freedom. 2 Corinthians 3.17 Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Now, let me clarify something here. What Pastor Sean did not say is, if you ever commit a sin... You're not a Christian. Did I say that? What did I say? Whoever practices sin. And the way that Jesus uses that is lifestyle, habitual lifestyle. Now, some of you are going are gonna to mess up from time to time. All of us are going to have periods of sin. Some of us are going to have periods of rebellion. Some of us are going are to slip up from time to time. We're going to fall. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is if you evidence a lifestyle of habitual, repeated, unrepentant sin, it's the totality of who you are, it's probably strong evidence that you're not saved. He's not saying that we never sin or that we can never sin or that if we sin, we've fallen beyond God's grasp. He's talking about a permanent condition of lifestyle. Now, the writer of Hebrews gives a very strong warning to those that think they're saved but are false converts. Listen to Hebrews 10, 26-27. And listen, the wording is key in the Scriptures. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Notice that the writer of Hebrews doesn't say if you commit a few sins here and there. He says if you continue in deliberate sins. Jesus' point is this. If you continue in deliberate, habitual, unrepentant sins, it's probably evidence you're not saved. And that needs to sink into some of us because there may be some of you here this morning that are in habitual, unrepentant sin as a lifestyle and you think you're saved, but you may not be because you are practicing sin and you're a slave to sin. Maybe you have a careless attitude towards sin. Maybe your conscience no longer bothers you. Maybe when somebody comes and corrects you, it's no longer a big deal. You become desensitized. Let me try to see if I can illustrate this for you. The difference. Two men both commit adultery against their wives and have an affair. Both men are guilty in their conscience and they have to come talk to their pastor about what they did. So they set up an appointment with Pastor Sean. By the way, this is, a, this is like nobody here. This is a fake example. I'm just giving you an example. So man number one comes into my office, sits down. He's broken. He's weeping. He knows what he did is wrong. 
He is broken. He wants to restore his marriage with his wife. He wants to go through counseling. He's willing to go through church discipline. Whatever it takes to glorify God and get his marriage back, he's willing to do it because he's a broken man and he realizes that he has sinned. And he's willing to receive correction or whatever happens. So I pray with him and, and the man's broken and repentant and willing to, to save his marriage. Man number two comes in. He got caught. He's guilty. He's got to get it off his chest. And so he feels like it's kind of therapy to get it off his chest, to talk to his pastor. And he begins to say, yeah, it's, I'm guilty. And I begin to confront him with the scripture. And he says, well, you know, men are men. That's kind of what I do. My wife doesn't satisfy me anymore. I'm going to continue to have the affair. It's not a big deal. Everybody does it. Well, we may have to, you know, exercise church discipline against you. I don't care. I mean, it really doesn't matter. I'm going to live however I want. No repentance, no brokenness, cavalier attitude. He's got a guilty conscience. What's the one thing that's the same between those two men? They both committed adultery. They both committed the same sin. What's the big difference between those two men? The first one is repentant. He's willing to confess. He's broken. The second man, cavalier. Not a big deal. Now, I can't look into the hearts of those two men, but I can, I can make an observation. Which of the two men do you think is probably a Christian, even though they both committed a major sin? Man number one is probably a Christian. Man number two is probably not a Christian. Let this be an evaluative tool for you this morning in your own personal life. There's a huge difference between making a profession of faith and having true possession of faith. You can claim to be a Christian with your mouth, but there's got to be evidences. And Jesus gives us these evidences. Have you experienced this transformation of true salvation? What are the three evidences that Jesus tells us? Are you abiding in the word? Do you love his word? Are you reading his word? Are you saturating yourself in his word? Number two, are you growing in your knowledge of the truth? Are you prone to believe falsehoods? Are you holding fast to, to sound doctrine? Number three, are you continually repenting of sin? Are you a slave to sin? Are you in bondage to sin? Are you in a habitual lifestyle of sin? Or are you repenting? Are you coming to faith in Christ in quick confession and repentance? Notice what Jesus says in verse 37. I know you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because, here's the key, my word finds no place in you. Jesus flat out says, listen, I don't care what your background is. I don't care if you're Jews or Israelites. I don't care if you're quote-unquote believing in me. I don't care about any of that. My word has no place in you. You have not received my word. You've not received me. It's a strong statement from Jesus. Now, I cannot look into your hearts this morning and make a judgment. I'm not here to say, you're a Christian, you're not, you're a Christian, you're not. And none of, nobody else should be able to point fingers and say, you're a Christian, you're not. That's not what we're doing here. We're not here to say, to judge each other. The only judge and jury you will have to stand before on the final day is Jesus and his word. Listen to Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him whom we must give an account. Here's the, here's the bold truth this morning. If you've been listening, every single one of us has been cut by the words of Jesus like a dagger. Every single one of us has been exposed before the one to whom we must give an account. And he's the only one we will stand before on that final day. And we will answer to him. Doesn't matter if you walked an aisle. Doesn't matter if you got baptized. Doesn't matter if you joined a church. What matters is, have you truly come to that point where you've exercised repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Are you truly one of his disciples? And if you're not this morning, then go directly to Jesus. Fly directly to Jesus and confess your sin. Confess your need. Confess him as your Savior and Lord. And here's what you will find. If you go directly to Jesus in brokenness, here's what you will find you will find a powerful and all-sufficient Savior with His arms open ready wide to receive you and accept you and forgive you. Don't go anywhere else. Don't look inside. Don't look at the person next to you. Go directly to Jesus and find an all-sufficient Savior who can make you one of His disciples today if you repent and believe. Ultimately, it's about glorifying God. That's what it's all about. If you are truly a disciple, then live like a disciple. If you're a Christian, then abide in his word. Grow in the knowledge of truth and be quick to repent of sin. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 8. He ties it all together. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do you prove you're a disciple? You bear fruit. And what does that do? It brings glory to God. Are you glorifying God? Are you bearing fruit? Are you a disciple? What is Jesus' main point? You're truly saved if you evidence to change life. Only Jesus knows if you're truly saved. I do not. If you're not, then go directly to him. If you are, then ask yourselves, am I growing in these areas? Am I abiding in his word? Am I growing in the truth? And am I quick to repent of sin? Or has it somehow enslaved me? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I want you just to reflect and meditate upon the words of Jesus. These are his words to us, not my words to us, his words to us. If you are my disciples, you will abide in my word. The truth will set you free. You won't be a slave to sin. The Son will set you free. All these things that Jesus has been saying to us, would you evaluate your life in light of the words of Jesus and go directly to him this morning in whatever way you need to to find salvation, to find forgiveness, to find comfort, to find encouragement. Let's go directly to Jesus this morning.
Father, we want to glorify you above all things. And the, the scripture says that you're glorified when we bear much fruit. And so prove to be Christ's disciples. And so, Lord, help us to look at our lives this morning to see if there be any fruit. See if there be evidence. And Lord, for some, there may just be a little bit. Help them not to get discouraged, but to know that you're growing them and you're shaping them. And they may just be a a baby Christian, a new Christian, maybe an immature Christian, but this may be the day where they start growing by leaps and bounds into becoming more like you. Lord, help us to abide in your word. Help us to know the truth that sets us free. And Lord, help us to experience the freedom of what it means to be set free from sin by you, Jesus. To no longer walk or practice sin as a lifestyle, but to be quick to repent, to be broken, to be humble. Lord Jesus, you're not calling us to perfection, for none of us would meet that standard. You're calling us to faith. You're calling us to brokenness. You're calling us to humility, to be teachable. And thank you that when we fail, there's forgiveness at the cross. Lord, my prayers, if there's anybody in this room that's not a believer, that's not a Christian, that's not a disciple, that today would be their day of salvation. They would know the truth, and that truth would set them free. The Son, Jesus, you would set them free indeed from their slavery to sin. Thank you, Jesus, for being the only one that can set us free from sin. Lord Jesus, we love you, we honor you, we praise you. May we not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. May we glorify the Father by bearing much fruit and so proving to be your disciples. By your grace alone and your power within us, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.